You are listening to Career Up Now Socially Distanced Close-Ups. Let's jump in on the conversation. When you first started out, did you envision yourself in the position you're working in now today? I have a crazy position because a freelance cartoonist in the Wall Street Journal I use cartoons in marketing. Yeah, I saw that really early on. I wanted to integrate cartoons and and cartooning into what I do. I studied marketing and I've been nominated twice to uh, marketing halls of fame. That means I'm just a nominee, but that's because I've done a lot of really interesting things with marketing. And with my books, I I don't know that I expected to be an author back then, but the books, they're just such a natural outgrowth of what I've been watching and experiencing and learning. So it just made sense to start sharing it in that format. I love that, how one thing leads to another, but you had a the vision at the very beginning. Would you yeah. describe your journey to the top? In some sense, it happened really quickly because very early on, after graduating from college in marketing, I wanted to use marketing and cartooning together. I just knew that they would would be a great fit together. This is a while ago. I wanted to create direct mail campaigns for publishers. They were the biggest and most sophisticated direct marketers in the world at that point. They had the biggest budgets and certainly had the biggest budgets for creative work. And so that's where I wanted to go. That was the big arena. And I got a couple of assignments pretty quickly, one for Rolling Stone, the other for Bon Appetit. And both of the test campaigns that I created for them that is, using cartoons with personalization so that the cartoons were personalized to the recipients, they ended up beating their controls, which means they ended up setting new records for response. And I thought, wow, that's my opportunity to break into the rest of the publishing industry. And that meant I needed to be reach about two dozen people, two dozen VPs and directors of circulation at the big Manhattan-based media companies. And I used this little campaign. I didn't know what to call it. I called it a contact campaign. It was a an eight by 10 print of a cartoon each about each recipient and sent it with a letter that said, this is the device I just used to beat the controls for Rolling Stone and Bon Appetit. And we should put this to the test for your titles. That was my first exposure to contact marketing. It ended up producing a hundred percent response rate. All of, all of them met with me. First of all, all of them connected with me. All of them met with me and all of them became clients. So I had all of the big publishers as clients really early in my career because of that. And then the rest of it is really just an outgrowth, I suppose, from that. I mean, the the contact marketing campaigns that I run are, they're kind of like direct mail on steroids in a way. They're just kind of crazy pieces that get, they don't get delivered through the post. They get delivered by FedEx. They're huge instead of postcard size. And they're just big audacious gestures to get someone's attention and get get a meeting. A lot of that just stemmed from what I did in direct marketing, actually. Cartooning has remained constant. And I wasn't always in the Wall Street Journal, but that became something that, that happened later. And then writing books, again, it was a really natural outgrowth of, you know, I've been using cartoons. Nobody seems to know how to use them in direct marketing. David Ogilvy used to say that humor doesn't sell, so people never seem to want to try it. And then I came around and showed them, no, this is how we'll do it. And I kept beating control after control after control. So it just seemed like all of these were natural outcrops or outcroppings from what I did very, very early on. And that was a pretty quick rise. That's amazing. I mean, just in our conversation, I got so many ideas of how to (laughs) try to get 
meetings with people. What are like some of your top recommendations for people like me that aren't a cartoonist in order to use creativity to get meetings with people? Well, first of all, you don't have to know how to draw. You don't have to be a cartoonist to use contact marketing. There's so many different forms of it. Actually, this is a form of contact marketing. We're connecting right now. Interviews. It's a great way to connect with people because that's what you live and you can get people onto your podcast and you can connect with a lot of people, a lot of really interesting people this way. So that's a great way. Someone suggested, pardon me, roundtables at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis. And those turned out to be great ways to connect with people. And they had nothing to do with cartoons or any of the really interesting and crazy things that people have been doing to get meetings. It's not just that. There's a whole range of things that people can do to use contact marketing and to break through to people that I certainly feel like I'm breaking through to people I should never be able to reach. But now I don't, I mean, I realize, well, no, you should actually, because you are obviously that's supposed to be happening. What opportunities do you believe that this pandemic, besides people having more time on their hands to meet, like what opportunities do you believe this provides for your industry? First of all, when it hit, I thought, you know what? I just know that this is going to be an opportunity of a lifetime to make connections that we would never be able to make otherwise. Because I was thinking, look, we're all going to start working from home. I'm used to it. This this studio is in my home, but everybody's going to start working from home and everybody's going to start using Zoom. They're going to have to rely on Zoom for, and you know, other competing platforms, but this kind of a platform to communicate and have meetings because you can't have meetings in, in person. And I knew that when I connected with people that if I said, Hey, by the way, would you, you know, can I send you a copy of my book that they'd be saying, yeah, of course, you know, sure. Send it. And then all I had to ask was, well, where should I send it? And obviously they're going to give me their home address. So I don't have to ask them, by the way, what's your home address? Which is kind of an invasive, I suppose, sounding thing. But you just ask where to send things. And now everything goes to people's homes. So it's actually been incredibly smooth. And I've run all sorts of, well, a lot of roundtables and then free lessons on desktop contact campaigns. And I've had a lot of action at a lot of, I guess you could call these meetings, but certainly presentations and made a lot of connections and they are turning into business. And so it's actually been a great time for my business. And I realize that's not true for everybody, but I have a friend who plays solo or always plays in a band, but he's a guitar player and singer. And, and he relies on having in-person gigs, you know, at the venues, at the, the bars and, the, and the, the stadiums and whatever. He just relies on that. And when he can't do that, like right now, he was just mentioning that he's, he's lost 63 gigs so far. So his income has really been hit. But now here's another interesting part of this. While I'm talking to people about getting meetings and we're discussing all that, I'm working on my next book, which is called The Weed Strategies. And it's a, it's a growth model based on what weeds do. And weeds are an elegant metaphor for growth. Everybody understands growing like a weed, but they're a really elegant metaphor for all kinds of ways to grow. One of the things that I've noticed in weeds is that they are segmented. If you've ever gone to pull a weed up in your yard and you get, you know, you go and you get just a little piece of it, that's actually because it's segmented and it's designed so that you can't get all of it by grabbing it. And so that segmentation is part of the new weeds model. The weeds is now an acronym, but the weeds model. And so looking at segmentation strategies for us, those are segmentation strategies for for the weeds is it's a way to mitigate risk. And for us, though, what are the risks that we face if we're in business? And particularly if we're in business for ourselves, yeah, actually, we're kind of all in business for ourselves. 
right? So, but what, how can we mitigate those risks? And so I've been talking to a lot of my interest, very, very interesting sources for the book about, well, you know, how do you recession-proof a business? And most of them are saying, well, you've got to be, obviously, you've got to be nimble. You can't just be stuck in the ways that you're doing business now and, and then believe that it will always continue that way because things always change. So don't be stuck. Be nimble on your feet. Be well-balanced on your feet. Be ready for the next change. You see that in restaurant owners that are setting up tables outside where they weren't before or doing takeout, doing anything they can, really. I mean, you know, the ones that aren't going to survive are the ones that do nothing and wait for the people to come back. But it's about being nimble and reinventing yourself, always being ready to reinvent yourself and reinvent the ways that you deliver. So my friend in the band, couldn't he start offering guitar lessons on Zoom or set up an online course for learning the guitar? Couldn't he get his music into those platforms that we, we all seem to use for videos to license music? I mean, start doing it differently. Look at where the demand for what you do moved to. It shifted. So where did it go? And get in front of it again. And you might have to have a side hustle too. I mean, you've got to be nimble, which is exactly, and persistent and um, resilient, which is exactly what we'd show us. All you have to do is look in your front lawn. <laughs> that's what they show us all the time. I mean, that's remarkable. I mean, like, it makes me think of, don't get stuck in the weeds, be the weed. It's funny because they don't have brains, so they don't think, but what they do have is they have processes that have been honed over hundreds of millions of years, but really, really well, well sorted processes. And they're programmed to run them. They know what the processes are. They're all equipped to do that. It's not like they had to be trained and they don't think about it. They're just programmed to run it like a computer, I suppose. And so they do. Um, and, and, and if they could think and speak to us and advise us, I think what they'd be saying is be the whole weed. Because and if you think about the, the elements of weeds, I mean, there are seeds that are usually highly mobile seeds. Think about dandelions, those seeds that you go, and they might fly, some of them fly thousands of miles before they take, before they set up. Um, and, and so, um, so seeds is a level of strategy in the weeds model. And then seed pods, which are multipliers of seeds. And then, and then thorns and segmentation and rosette and vine and um, root and soil strategies. But, you know, if you're just focused, like I could tend to be, I mean, I've, now that I've been studying weeds, I'm not quite so much anymore, but, but I'm, I sort of live in the, in the seeds area. Seeds are analogous to any buzz and ads and um, you know, actually anything that causes people to become aware of you and form the intent to do, to transact with you in some way. So, so, you know, social media is a form of that as well. But cartooning and, and all, the, all the, the creative work, that's all seeds. It's all ideas and concepts and so forth. So I could easily just concentrate there and not sort of venture out beyond that. And if I did, I would not be successful because weeds are not, I'm sorry, seeds are not an entire plant. So seeds would say, be, an, be the, the whole weed. They'd say, deal with what is too. And there are a lot of really interesting messages they would have for us. Remarkable. And I can't wait until, uh, until that book comes out. I, I had a chance to, Thank you. to, to see, the, uh, to see your, your, your cartoon. I don't know if that's the right, your illustration. Oh, the infograph. The, the, the infograph, infograph yeah. Of, yeah. Of, the, uh, of what it is. And I'm just super excited to see that, that seed you know, and flourish. <laughs> I'm going to get to, I, we've already, uh, I'm going to be teaching that at the NASDAQ Center for Entrepreneurship now. Wow. I've become an author in residence. And um, 
I, it's starting to take off. And it's, re it's really cool because every time I interview someone and we go over that infographic, they get really excited about it. And, and I, I love seeing that because that sort of gives me some gauge of how people are going to react to the, to the book, I hope. It's remarkable. Can you name a teaching moment, whether that was a mistake or failure, that made you reassess? Um, you mean reassess? Well, the thing is, <clears throat> that's, <clears throat> that's part of our process to make mistakes. And then, of course, learn from them. And so I guess that probably just happens all the time. It's happened so naturally. I'm not sure I even notice it anymore. It's like I might even laugh it off. Like, oh, maybe I made a mistake. I won't do that again. You know, because that's, that's just, I mean, you don't internalize that and say, oh, shoot, you made a mistake. Oh, I'm, I'm a horrible. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even be in this business now. I mean, like, you don't do that to yourself. Just make mistakes, laugh it off, shake it off, learn from definitely learn from it and, and move on. So I, I think that's probably been, I mean, every time I test a campaign, there will make mistakes or, and you learn more from your mistakes than you do your successes anyway. So um, God, I would say that's just kind of a pattern <laughs> that's been throughout my life, but I just call it testing. You know, it's, that is what it is. It's testing and testing the ground and probing and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Um, it's just a kind of a natural part of expanding. I don't know. It's, it's, um, but you asked for a specific instance. Uh, and the one that might come to mind is very early on. Here I was, uh, you know, I was talking to all these big direct marketers, the, the publishers. And so, you know, if Business Week, if I'm talking to Business Week and they're saying, this is great, but you know, what we want in the cartoon is we want our logo somewhere, let's say on one of the buildings that you can see through the window in the background. We need our logo in the, in the drawing. And I'm thinking at the time, I think, well, how do you say no to Business Week? So, okay, I'll see if I can make that work for you. And what I discovered was that, I mean, thank God it was direct marketing. So there was full and direct feedback on what works and what didn't work. And those failed. And what I realized was really quickly was, okay, well, I see what's happening. We, we need to focus solely on the identity of the recipient and not the marketer. But marketers being marketers, have this instinct to stick their brand into everything. So I have to protect them from that. I have to say, no, Business Week, I'm not doing that again. Now, because you're paying me for results, not, not paying me to stick your logo into places it shouldn't be. So I'm gonna just, I'm gonna protect you from that. And what you're paying me for is to create something that, that generates better response than what you're using now. I guess it would be that sort of thing. And if I can give a sort of a, a contrasting example, if we have time, would that be okay? Yeah, it sounds great. Well, so, so that just by contrast, Outdoor Life was a client, Outdoor Life magazine. So we put together a double panel postcard, tested two different cartoons, but the, the winning cartoon showed two fishermen on a dock. This is a, a magazine for hunters and fishermen, for people who like fishing and hunting, I should say, not just for men. And one of them is holding this, you know, this big fish is draped over his arms. It would be too heavy to actually hold in real life, but big fish in his arms. The other one's saying that looks like the one Bradley threw back, for example, right? So if it was going to you, it would be, it'd be personalized to you. So that went out against the control and we offered a print, an eight by 10 print with your paid order. And that thing almost doubled the response that their control, the previous control was getting. And, you know, just to give you an example of the control, and in other words, that's in statistics, we always test against like a constant, a control group. Right? I mean, that's where control comes from. So in direct response, the control is the most effective thing they've ever put out in the mail. And that's what, when you're creating new campaigns, that's what you're creating against or competing against. So if you tie the control, 
you've just tied the record. Wow, congratulations, that's fantastic. If you beat the control, you just set the new record, but it's usually by the slimmest of margins because that is, after all, that's an evolution of controls. So that's a really tough thing to beat. You know, you would normally beat a control by maybe a couple percentage points, but this one almost doubled it for outdoor life. And notice that we had nothing about the magazine in the cartoon. We had nothing about their offer, nothing about saving 70% off the newsstand price, nothing about them. It was all about the recipients and they ate it up. So that's probably one that one of many lessons that have, that have been learned through trial and error. One, in one case, I let the clients persuade me to stick their, their identity or their, their branding into the cartoon. And in the other case, I'm saying, hell no, we're not doing that. You're paying me for my test experience. Here's what it is. This is what it says. Come on, let's go. And, and it worked out brilliantly. It's awesome. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable to be working with a giant and then being able to say, no, you can't have your name on it. So I'm going to put you on the spot because we're here and I know that you're down for that. So like with my organization, Career Up Now, where we're connecting emerging professionals with industry leaders, and let's say our goal is to recruit more industry leaders to be involved with our organization, either as mentors or as donors or pieces like that, like what type of creative marketing or like campaign could we run that's really, like what comes to mind that's really outside of the box that could be effective mm. in those areas? First of all, I had the coolest mentors. I don't know if I ever told you that, but I tell people that I was raised by wolves professionally because they were all the cartoonists from Playboy and The New Yorker and, and then Jay Conrad Levinson, the, the author of the guerrilla marketing books. What's interesting is I, I was just reading a post this morning on, on LinkedIn. I'm, yeah, post and then comments. And, and it happened to be, Poster was releasing an episode of, of his podcast just like this. And I was the episode. I mean, I was the, the, um, the guest. And so people were responding in it and I'm seeing, oh my God, look at the effect you're having. This is, a, this is remarkable to see this because people are saying, oh yeah, Stu Heineck, he's sort of my mentor from a distance. And they got someone else is saying, yeah, me too. Thinking, at least I know now. Mentorship doesn't have to take place in person, does it? I mean, it, it can take place at a distance. It can take place like this on Zoom calls, I, I suppose. Or, you know, a lot of people are, are receiving mentorship through the books that they read. And I think it's incredible. They're really smart for doing that. But if you get to work with your heroes, that's just, that's so elevating. It's so, how would you, so you're asking, how would you reach out to, to people to, to, to recruit them as mentors? Yeah, exactly. I think I would do a round table, talk to them about what it means to be a mentor and what, what it means to leave your mark. I'd probably ask a lot of authors too. I don't know who you're gonna ask. You might be asking maybe their potential clients too. So authors aren't great, great clients for placement, but I would pull some authors in. You might give them a title. I've just become an author in residence for the NASDAQ Center for Entrepreneurship. And, and that has to do with giving several, I've got several talks that I'm giving on, on how to get meetings with, with anyone and, and also weed strategy. I'm just so proud of that. I mean, weed strategy, that's such a crazy concept, but there it is. I think it's actually going to start, well, I shouldn't say where else it might show up yet. Not quite ready to announce that, but other really surprising places. What's really kind of cool is you get the title of author in residence because I'm an author, I suppose, but so I, that might help. Well, I know you must be interviewing a lot of them for, for your podcast. So you know, like, a round table about mentoring would be incredible. And just do a round table. You don't even have to be there in person, just do it on Zoom. A round table and just ask them to share about their lifetime mentorship experience. Yeah, about what, what mentorship meant to them, how it helped mm. them, but also how they could become mentors because that's ultimately you want to recruit them as mentors. So might have some guests on there. I mean, if I was on there as your guest, I'd be saying, you know what, since my books have come out, 
people have been contacting me and telling me that they, my book was the basis under which they started their companies. It's a mind blower. Oh my God, I read your book and it changed my life. I had an inter- interview this morning, really a lot of fun with these two interviewers in the UK and, and their style of interview is really confrontational. They were, one of them was, was the bad guy and he was saying, you know, I didn't really like it. Well, the thing is, I, I really did not like your book until I got to section two. And I have to say, although I had that opinion of your book, I can't stop myself from recommending it to everybody I know in sales. I thought, okay, well, that's good. Something happened. It's interesting. Explore that. And, uh, you know, it's it just the fact that I had an effect on his career as well. And I did. I helped him discover a way to connect with the people he needed. We all need to connect with important people, right? I and mean, that's how things happen in our lives and in our careers and in our businesses. So I helped him. Despite all of that, all that resistance in his, in his head, I ended up helping him break through. And that was great. What a great feeling for me. And it's all mentorship. I'd probably be telling, you want to have people tell stories, I guess, about how they've, either how they were mentored or how they're mentoring others. You know, I think it's probably a lot like charity. And I, I started a, a group called cartoonist.org, a group of cartoonists from the Wall Street Journal and the New Yorker. We give our, we, we, could, we donate art to help charities raise funds. You and I have spoken about this in another interview, but I, I think mentoring is probably a lot like charity. And you feel like you have to make it, you've had to have made it fully before you start giving back in charity, or at least I felt that way. And I was wrong. It was just totally wrong. I would say that mentoring is probably the same thing. You are giving back to the community. What's one value that you hold dear? Mischief and, and perseverance, actually. Which is what a crazy combination, but actually mischief and per- perseverance tend to work out actually really well. That makes for some really interesting, fun things. But mischievously persevering. Yeah, well, I mean, mischief in terms of what you're going to do. And because why not have fun? You're going to be doing your, your whole career. Have fun with it, for crying out loud. And then perseverance, because really nothing comes about without it. Everything comes about with it. I've got to ask you. So with this mischievous perseverance, always my hesitation. Well, I see some great marketers out there that do some really mischievous things with their marketing. And I'm always like afraid to jump into that space and do that with my own contact marketing, like with my organization or with other things, just for fear of doing it. Like what advice would you have for someone like me? Well, I'll go back to what we talked about just a moment ago. Don't, don't be afraid to fail. Mm. Just think of it as testing. Because <laughs> look, I'm, I'm going to try a lot of things and I know not, not all of them will work. And that's okay. I want to find the ones that do. And that process is the only way you find out what works. I would say just be original. Don't copy, but express your value in a way that it is hard to do. Express the value you want to impart. I mean, very directly, but don't be afraid to be, I don't know, audacious, let's say. I don't know. Just, you know it makes me think about Dan Waldschmidt. That's the, the story I told in, in uh, that book. I'm getting better at this. This is all mirrored. But in that book, He's a turnaround specialist, and I'm going to shorten everything. He has this process for reaching CEOs of companies that are in trouble. And what he does is, when he, as soon as he finds out who they are, he has a sword made up, really beautiful sword. But these swords are made by the prop maker who made all the swords for the, the movie Gladiator. So they're beautiful. And he has the CEO's name engraved on the sword, along with an inscription. If you're not all in, you're not in at all. Puts it in a beautiful wooden box, a felt-lined wooden box, with a handwritten note. And this note says... Dear Brad, listen, hopefully you're not in that position, but anyway, if it was coming to you, dear Brad, I realized that 
um, businesses were, and I noticed, noticed you lost a battle recently. I just wanted to let you know, if you ever need a few extra hands in battle, we've got your back. And that campaign is pulling 100% response for him. It cost him $1,000 every time he has a sword made. It's not cheap, and I'm not suggesting that, but it's worth, for him it's worth it because every engagement that he has for turnaround, special, I mean, for turnaround services is a million dollars and up. So it's worth it to spend that kind of money to, you know, per person. But what I'm thinking though is that you wouldn't want to, what you want to do from that example is not say, great, then what I'm going to do is start sending swords, but instead say, what visual metaphor, perhaps, if you want to use a visual metaphor, but what visual thing, what physical thing could I send that would illustrate the value I want to bring? Because the sword definitely does that for Dan. Dan has a blog called Edgy Conversation. So a knife's edge is already, I'm trying to make a knife's edge, but a knife's edge is already part of his personal brand. And he's an ultra competitive athlete. He runs hundred mile races and wins. That's the kind of guy he is. So ultra competitiveness and that razor's edge, and you know, it's just, that's his personal brand. And when he says, I noticed you lost a battle recently, he's saying, I will step into battle with you and I'll swing my sword right along with you. So it's really important that he thought out what his message was and then embodied it and what he, what he decided to send. Didn't put this on my desk, but I can grab something behind me. But here's a visual metaphor and it's not a thousand dollars. My clients have their logo and it, actually they turn it into a business card. So that's a visual metaphor for loss, isn't it? And risk and risk mitigation. I mean, great for insurance, for example. I mean, once, you, once your coffee spills, you're not going to drink it again. You need to get another one. You need to be covered, I suppose. But, but that's a great visual metaphor for not only that, that risk and spillage, but or the risk for, of spillage, but also just for, hey, why don't we have a cup of coffee? So when this gets dropped off with the receptionist and there's a note inside that says, Hey, sorry, I missed you. Here's a Starbucks card. And well, you know what? I, would, I, I want to talk to you about loss and risk management and mit mitigation, but why don't we do it over a cup of coffee? It just makes sense. You just need to work out those. What are you trying to say? It's like using words in a letter. You wouldn't just copy somebody else's letter. You'd express what it is you needed to say. That's sort of the trick to it. I'm so inspired by this. And I just want to express uh, my tremendous gratitude and appreciation for you joining me today and wish you tremendous success in all your endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.